Sometimes when the anthems are so beautiful and amazing, we're caught up in the moment. We're not sure if we you should applaud or not. But I want you to know that I'm extremely grateful for Dr. Andy Blosser and the Chancel Choir. I'm glad they're back. Would you thank them for being back? And I don't know about you, but I've missed Sarah Keentz the last three months while she was down at Camp Akita. Would you thank her for being back too? Let's pause for a moment before we begin with the sermon. Holy and gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of those gathered here on this day be acceptable in your sight, for indeed you are our rock, our fortress, our redeemer. Amen. Five years ago, a couple of months after Julie and I moved here to begin this shared ministry with, with all of you, I was invited down to Camp Akita to speak to our summer counseling staff. They wanted to hear from me about our, our church's history and heritage. They wanted to learn about our theology and our understanding of, of the Bible and who Jesus is and who God might, may be. I, of course, accepted. We drove down uh, on, a, on a, mid, a day in the middle of the week, had dinner with them, and then we gathered in the lodge where I shared for about 30, 35 minutes a variety of things about our church and our theology and, and who we are. After, after the 35 minutes were over, I handed out three-by-five note cards and a bunch of pens and pencils and said to all the kids, all the young adults, the counseling staff, now write down any question you have for me, anything you'd like to ask. If you're afraid to ask it, Go ahead and write that down. I want to hear from you questions about heaven or hell, our church's history and heritage, our theology. Any, you want to know about Julie's list of sins? Write that down on the card. I'll be happy. It's a short list, just so we're clear, just so we're clear there. Well, I gathered up with the cards. I shuffled them uh, through so that I didn't read them in any particular order and then began. And I could tell by the quality of their questions how bright and well-educated and thoughtful our young adult counseling staff was. They're really good questions about heaven and hell and the nature of God and the spirit and all that sort of thing. The one that really got my attention was one who asked me, what did you believe when you were our age, when you were in your mid-20s? I said with a clear voice, strong and direct, when I was in my mid-twenties, I was leading youth ministry, and I preached to those kids, and any time I could preach in the, in the pulpit to the congregation of the undying, ongoing, eternal love of God, that there's nothing you can do to turn God's weight, love away from you. And I took a breath, and I thought to myself, that sounds almost like too much, almost unbelievable. And then I just said, I need you to know that as strong in my conviction about what people needed to hear when I was in my mid-twenties, I still doubted whether it was true for me. I had a hard time accepting my acceptance, knowing my failures, my mistakes, yes, my list of sins as well. Knowing all of that, I couldn't really accept that God would welcome me. When I shared that, the silence 
and the stillness in the room told me that I touched on something that was no doubt true for many, if not most, of the young adults gathered there. Telling that story reminds me of my friend Betty. Betty was in her late 70s when I met her. She was a member of the church in Atlanta that I served many, many years, years ago. Despite the huge difference in our ages, she was about 40 years older than me. We became quite, quite good friends. She was only about four foot 11, highly energetic though, very intelligent, wise, attractive, smart. She had all the, all the parts going. She's very wealthy and generous with the church. In fact, insisted that we not do anything to acknowledge her generosity, don't do any, say anything publicly. She said, I just love this church. I love the people here so much. I want to give as much as she can. And she was just as generous with her time. She volunteered in just about every ministry in the church that she could possibly sign up for. I saw her at the church probably three or, or four days a week. In fact, one day, I'd been there about four or five months, when she and her husband, Dan, had invited us to join them in their home for dinner on a Friday night. She was there at the church volunteering for something. She popped into my office and said, can I have a minute? Oh, please. Hi, Betty. It's good to see you. By the way, Betty is not her real name, just so, we, just so we're clear. Anyway, she, she popped in and, and she said, I, I want to tell you something about dinner. We're looking forward to having dinner with you, but can I let you know something? Oh, please, please do. She said, my husband, Dan, and I we like a little bit of Jack Daniels before dinner. If that bothers you, we've hired the wrong guy. <laughs> I said, Betty, it will only bother me if you skip your cocktail that night. Trust me. Well, as I said, we became really quite good friends. I saw her all the time. I, I relied on her for, for help and, and assistance and, and thinking through difficult issues that sometimes came up in the life of that church. She was an amazing soul. But a few years later, she made another appointment to come see me. She said, I, I need my pastor and I need an hour. Please, Betty, let's make it happen. A few days later, she came in and sat down on my couch pulled my chair over close to her. Tell me what's going on. She said, all my life, I've not believed that I'm accepted. I love the message of this church. I love the sermons that I hear. I love the way that you preach grace, but I just don't believe it's true for me. She said, there's a voice in my head. <clears throat> the voice says, you're not enough. It's the voice of my mother. She said, my mother's been gone for decades now, but I still hear her. I can still hear her telling me I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not enough. I so want to believe it's true. And then she sat in silence and wept. We talked about this many times in a variety of ways. Sometimes at dinner, sometimes over a cup of coffee after the worship service was over on a Sunday. She struggled with it all the way to the end of her life. In fact, she broke her hip at the church, stumbled and fell, ended up in the hospital as you can imagine, and things began to deteriorate quite quickly. She was in her mid-80s at that point. She contracted pneumonia. She was very ill. 
Her son called me and said, can you go see mom? I don't think she has more than a day or two. Of course I did. When I arrived there, she was laying down the bed. Her eyes were closed. But I pulled up a chair right next to her. I said, Betty, it's Glenn. I want you to know that Julie and I love you. She smiled, eyes still closed, and nodded her head. I want you to know, Betty, that God loves you that God has always loved you, that you are more than enough. She struggled, but she opened her eyes, and in a weak voice, she said, I'm dying, and you come to preach to me? <laughs> I said, Betty, it's the only thing I know how to do. It's the one skill I've got, and I want you to know how much we love you, how much God loves you. This is the singular word I want you to hear on this day. There's more to come in the sermon, but if you take anything away from this sermon, take that simple phrase away. You are more than enough. Several years ago, I picked up the book, If Grace is True. That's the title of this sermon. It was written by James uh, Gulley, uh, by um, Philip Gully and James Mulholland. Uh, Philip Gully is the person I'm interviewing tomorrow night on a Zoom call that you are all welcome to join in on, by, by the way. He's also written some of the books that are for sale uh, out in the narthex. I picked up this book, If Grace is True, and I've got to tell you, it transformed my ministry and my message and my life. Now, I'd always preached grace prior to reading it, but I kind of hedged my bets a little bit and kind of it wasn't quite as clear and strong as I could possibly be. And when I read that book, though, I was determined to make that the central message of almost everything I say in public, in worship, and in other study settings. If grace is true, those authors wrote, then it's true for everyone. If grace is true, it's true for everyone. I, I cut away the, 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 the hedging of my bets in my preaching, and I just got as direct and as clear and as strong as I possibly could. Oh, in the church that I was serving at that time, there were voices, there were members who didn't like that, who thought I was leading people down a terrible path theologically, but I didn't care. If that word doesn't work for you, I'll go away. This word is clear in my mind. If grace is true, it's true for everyone. Think of how powerful that is. Think of what that means. It's true for everyone. I, I read some Philip Gully last week. I'm, I just finished his book, Unlearning God. In that book, he, noticed, he notes that there are 39,000 Christian denominations. Now, there's some argument among church historians and scholars about how accurate that number is. But if you divide up all the groups, all the subgroups of the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church and other churches, it's not hard to come up with thousands of, of names. But think of that. If grace is true, and it's true for everyone, it's true for fundamentalist Christians. It's true for progressive liberal Christians like us. It's true for everyone in the middle. Think of what that means beyond the Christian church. It's true for Muslims. It's true, it's true for Hindus. It's true for atheists. It's true for, for, for any and all of God's children. It's, let me be clear about this. It's true for Methodists even. It's true for Presbyterians, it's true for Baptists, it's true for people who like pineapple on their pizza. If grace is true, it's true for everyone. And the reason why I'm, I'm, I want to be so clear about this is there's, there are too many folks 
who've been harmed by churches or religions that have a fear-based theology that are trying to frighten you and scare you into heaven rather than welcoming you with wide open arms of grace and love. We've got to do something about that. We've got to be careful about this. I read last week about a church that, like us, serves communion by having people come down the center aisle to the pastor who has the elements, the bread and the wine there. In this particular church, on this particular Sunday, folks are coming down the front, taking the bread, dipping the, in, the, in, the, in the wine, receiving communion, but the pastor notices that the next person in line, in fact, there's three more behind this one, they're all wearing uh, rainbow lapel pins. These are members of his church that he knows who are in full support of the full inclusion of the LGBTQ community. He sees the pins on their lapels and he pulls back the elements and walks away from them. You can see there's anger and sadness on their faces as they walk off to the side and begin to return to their seats. The next man in line though, the fifth one in line at that point, comes to receive communion. He's not wearing any lapel pens. He takes his piece of bread. Before he dips it in the wine though, he walks over to the ones, to those four. And he takes the bread and he breaks it. And he breaks it again. And then another time until there are four pieces. And then he serves each of these who've been rejected by their church. The Lord's Supper is given to them. Oh, the pastor and the leaders of the church, they become enraged over this. They can't believe that he's violated their theology. Do you know what they did? They called the police. What a crazy thing to do. What are the police going to arrest you for? Uh, improper theology on a Sunday morning. Come with us. I mean, it makes no sense. But that's the way so many, so many fear-filled, fear-based, theologically ugly churches have behaved. If grace is true, it's true for everyone. And here's what a church like us needs to hear. You don't have to be more than you are to receive that grace. It's Rachel Held Evans, the, the amazing theologian whose life was taken too soon at the age of 37, who, who reminds us that God comes to us as we are, comes to the world as it is. God's not waiting for you to get everything put together and make everything look perfect and right in your life. God's going to come to you in your lostness, in your littleness. Too often we get confused thinking that we've got to create what Susan Howitz calls our, our glittering image, this image where we've got everything put together. I've, I've got a house, I've got, I've got a three-car garage, I've got a nice, a nice wife and, and family, I've got 2.3 kids, a dog and a cat, and I went to the right colleges with the respectable degrees, and look at me, I've earned my way in. And the problem is, when we get stuck into that way of thinking, we sometimes know that behind that glittering image is that person inside who has that ugly voice, like my friend Betty, saying, you're not enough. You're not enough. That's why Jesus tells these parables. That's why he, he tells these stories. He wants us to see how much we are already loved by God. You see, in, in Luke's day, Luke's writing for a church, for a church community. In Luke's day, there were folks who would say, we don't want the sinners, we don't want the people who don't look like us with the three-car garages and the 2.3 kids and the dog and the cat. We don't want those people making their way into our church. But Jesus knows that what's really at the heart of their closing of their doors is their own 
ability to deal with their own weakness. And so he tells a story of a, of a, of a sheep rancher who has a hundred sheep, but one of them has wandered away and is now lost. Did you notice in the story as it was read this morning? Where are the 99? In the wilderness. What kind of a sheep, sheep rancher leaves 99% of his belongings vulnerable to attacks by wolves, vulnerable to attacks by other wild animals, vulnerable to maybe walk away and, and get lost. It makes no sense for him to go and get the one. Jesus knows this. It's called hyperbole. He's exaggerating. He's not talking about what it means to be a good shepherd. He's saying to the folks who are listening to him, God will come after you in your lostness. God will come looking for you and will do everything God possibly can to find you and wrap you in the arms of love. The next story makes the same point. A woman, here the woman is a feminine metaphor for God. She sweeps and she sweeps and she looks and she moves furniture and she does everything she can until she can find that one lost coin. Fred Craddock asks the question, does she, does she stop sweeping and moving furniture and looking when, the, lights, when the, the oil for her lamp goes out? No. Does she stop when her arms begin to ache and her back is sore from moving all the furniture and sweeping and doing so much? Does she stop then? No. Does she stop when her arrogant and rude husband shows up and says, hey, I want dinner on the table? And she says, no, sorry, make your own dinner. I got to find this coin. She doesn't stop until she finds it. Note this. What do the sheep and the coin do to be found? Nothing. They don't confess their sin. They don't acknowledge their failure. They don't say, oh, geez, I've, I've been a bad person. I, I want to be accepted back in. They do nothing. God, in the form of the shepherd, in the form of the woman, comes to them and welcomes them home. What an amazing thing. It's in our lostness, in our weakness, our failure, that God comes after us. One of my favorite theologians is a man named Robert Farrar Capon. Father Capon is in the resurrection now. He, by the way, was a spiritual searcher here at First Community Church, I think about 25 years ago or so. He writes about these parables. I want you to see what he says. The entire cause of the recovery operation in both stories is the shepherd's or the woman's determination to find the lost. Neither the lost sheep nor the lost coin does a blessed thing except hang around in its lostness. Pause there for a moment. Do you see the point he's making? They don't do anything to get found. They don't get their life turned around. They don't, they don't stop this or stop that or start doing some other thing. It's in their lostness that God comes to them. On the strength of this parable, therefore, it is precisely our sins and not our goodnesses that most commend us to the grace of God. What a wildly radical thing to do. It's our sins that commend us to the goodness of God, to the grace of God. Now let me be clear. The word sin has been used in ugly ways throughout the history of the church universal. It's been used as a, as a hammer word. It's been used as a word to make people feel guilty, to judge them and hold them down and control them. That's not how Father Capon is using it here. He's wanting us to see it's in our own weakness, our own failure, our own sin, our mistakes, where God comes to find us. That voice in your head, and I suspect many of you have it, the 
one that says, you're not good enough? It's the voice of the devil. It's the voice of the Satan. You know, the Hebrew phrase, ha-satan, translates to the accuser. Satan is the one who accuses falsely. It's Satan's voice that you hear telling you that you're not enough. Now let me be clear. I do not believe that there is a being called Satan or the devil or the personification of evil. I do believe, if you do, that's fine. I do believe that this mythological idea evolved over time to help us name that shadow side of our souls, to help us give a name to that voice. Rachel Held Evans, the woman I quoted earlier, she says, it is the voice of shame. It's a voice that needs to be told to be quiet and go away so that we can flourish. Not long after I was ordained, I served a church out in California that had a member who was an owner and director of a funeral home. He came to me after a couple of weeks and said, I oftentimes have people come who want to celebrate their mother's or their father's life or some of their loved ones. They're not members of a church, but they feel like they'd like a pastor. Would you be willing to serve in those situations? I said, I'd be very happy to. And so I began to do funerals for, for, for folks I'd, I'd never met and never been around, but did my best to, to learn as much as I could about the loved one being remembered. And I started using a verse, a couple of verses from the book of Revelation. And I was surprised and shocked by how many people would say to me afterwards, I love that verse from Revelation. I've never heard it before. All I've heard is scary stuff from Revelation. I can't believe that that's really in there. Thank you for blessing me with that word. That caught my attention. I continue to use it as often as I can if the family would like to hear it. I want you to hear this, this word as well. See, the home of God is among mortals. God will dwell with them. In the Greek, by the way, the word dwell, it literally translates to pitch God's tent. God's going to come to your house and pitch God's tent in your front yard. You might want to make sure the lawn's been mowed when that happens. And God's very self will be with them and be their God. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain. No more. For the first things have passed away. If grace is true, It's true for everyone. Amen.